Hey folks, quick note before we get started. Rufus is on a beach somewhere, so he's asked me to fill in. Just kidding. He's working hard, making the next big idea club better than ever. If you haven't checked out our app lately, I highly recommend that you do. We've made a bunch of major improvements, added tons of great new content. Rufus has also been recording some killer new interviews, which we're going to be sharing with you pretty soon. Really excited about that. But I was not kidding about the filling in part. For the next few weeks, I'm going to be sitting in the host chair. I'm going to be speaking with a few authors whose books are a little bit further afield, I'd say, from what we usually cover on the show. This is summertime after all. It's the season of vacation. So I thought it'd be fun to share some books about travel and adventure, books that take you on a journey. So together, we're going to travel down thousands of miles of American rivers. We're going to take a life-changing walk in our own backyards. And today, we're going to the beach. I'm Caleb Bissinger, and this is a special episode of The Next Big Idea. I live in Los Angeles. My house is only about 12 miles from the beach. So of course, I never go. But a few days back, my girlfriend and I got up the courage to brave traffic on the 10 and drove until we saw the ocean. And then we drove some more, looking for parking. And after all that driving, we were too tired to take a walk on the beach, so we ducked into the bar of a waterfront hotel. This hotel was right on the razor's edge between charming and tourist trap. When you took our order, the waiter gave me the hang loose sign, the shaka. It's a Hawaiian export that is now the international hand gesture of vacation. Or in this case, the international hand gesture that says, you must be a tourist because you just paid way too much for a weak Aperol spritz and a lukewarm Heineken. Clearly, he mistook us for out-of-towners, which was understandable since everyone else in the bar seemed to be. As we sat there drinking our drinks, we looked out over the walkway that runs along the ocean. It was lined with palm trees that provided absolutely no shade. A bald busker with a beat-up guitar was playing, I kid you not, Margaritaville. I'm afraid to even wonder how many times a day he plays that song. There were women in bikinis on bicycles, buff men in board shorts on skateboards. A middle-aged guy with zinc on his nose stomped past, carrying a boogie board in one arm and a crying toddler in the other. It occurred to me, as we sat there people-watching, that we could have been anywhere, that this vista was nearly identical to ones I'd seen in Hawaii and South Beach. That's one of the odd things about beach resorts, the sameness of them. The big resorts all resemble each other. The tourists resemble each other. Even the soundtrack is the same. Jimmy Buffett, Jack Johnson, maybe a little Bob Marley. I know I sound like I'm being super critical, maybe even kind of snobby. So I should tell you that I love the beach. I even love the kitsch that often comes with it. I knew after one chord that the bald busker was playing Margaritaville because I know that song by heart. But as much as I love the beach, I can't help seeing it these days in a more critical light. And for that, I have to thank Sarah Stadola. Sarah is the author of a new book called The Last Resort, a chronicle of paradise, profit, and peril at the beach. And in the book, she tries to figure out what keeps us coming back to these fraudulent paradises. Why are our fantasies of Shangri-La all the same? And with sea levels inching higher and higher, 
How much longer will that fantasy be able to hold on in the face of climate change? Sarah's particularly well-suited to answer these questions because she's not just a talented writer, she's also a prolific traveler. That's something I asked her about when we spoke last week. So, Sarah, I have to tell you that as I read your brilliant new book, The Last Resort, one of my initial reactions was envy. Because (laughs) to write this book, you drew on trips that you've taken to Thailand, Monte Carlo, Captain Tib, Hawaii, Fiji, Nicaragua, Senegal, Ibiza, Tulum, Vietnam, Portugal, Barbados, St. Kitts, Miami, Malaysia. Did I miss any? Is that the full list? I think that was fairly comprehensive. So I was initially quite jealous, but then as I read on, that jealousy dissipated somewhat because you're not really someone who is infatuated with the beach. I think you approach these resorts that you visited, these idyllic places, with a pretty healthy dose of journalistic skepticism, right? You do not drink the Kool-Aid-flavored Mai Tais. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that is kind of how I came to it. I was not a person, you know, in the early decades of my life who spent a lot of time at the beach or went on a lot of beach vacations. Um, And you know, in the book I talk about, you know, it, I, I started going to some periodically when I started dating a surfer <laughs> in my yeah. early 30s. And so I really was coming to it from an outsider's perspective. And when I did that, I think if you come into these, this beach resort culture as an outsider, it does strike you as a kind of strange culture, um, a strange mm-hmm. cultural phenomenon. And that was kind of what sparked it. And and so, yes, I think you're right. I don't have an infatuation with, you know, beach vacations for myself, I guess. But I did develop an infatuation with understanding this culture, and you know, this part of our culture that I had just come to. What I especially love about the book Sarah ended up writing as a way to get to the bottom of that infatuation of hers is the number of different sun hats that she wears. Sometimes she's an economic historian exploring all the different ways that beach resorts around the world have exploited local labor and come to dominate regional economies. Sometimes she's a climate journalist, warning us that with global sea levels expected to rise as much as three feet by the end of the century, some of our favorite beaches may not be able to hold on. And sometimes she's a philosopher, meditating on why, after avoiding the beach for centuries, people all over the world now flock to it. Up until... Pretty much the 1700s, uh, people were generally afraid of the ocean and by extension, the beach and, and really wanted nothing to do with it. And then, you know, in the 1500s, European explorers started going out into, you know, the great beyond of the ocean and coming back to tell the tale. So that kind of got the, the sowed the seeds of, of, mm. of our approach starting to change. But then in the 1700s in, in England, some enterprising doctors started touting the supposed health benefits of both seawater and sea air. And that was for the first time getting people to come specifically to the seaside to spend time. Not that it was necessarily a fun thing or intended to be a fun thing for them at the time. It was really, it was to either improve your health or to convalesce from a sickness. That was the the shift that kind of got people heading for extended periods of time to the seaside. 
Right. This is a place where you go to sort of kick your tuberculosis, not to right. work on your tan. Right. Right. Um, and I love the point that you make too. You know that if you look at say the Bible, the ocean is a menace, right? It you know it's we think of Noah's Ark and the Great Flood, and you know like the Garden of Eden is not a beachside resort; it's a garden. Right. Fun fact: the doctors who ran those proto beach resorts had their patients drink seawater. They also had them wash their eyes with it. I think it's safe to say this was nobody's idea of a vacation. In fact, the word vacation, as we use it today to mean a time of rest and relaxation, it didn't even exist back then. Our modern sense of the word didn't show up until the 1800s. So what happened? When did people realize that going to the beach didn't have to be a form of torture? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Monaco. So, you know, like we just talked about up until basically the 1860s, I guess, which is when the casino at Monte Carlo opened, the beach and the seaside resort was a kind of regimented place. You know, you were kind of serious when you went there. And then they opened the the casino and these, you know, fabulous hotels um, at Monte Carlo. And that did flip the switch all of a sudden. The seaside was a place where you could go for decadence and indulgence and to leave all your cares behind. It was, you know, the kind of what happens in Monte Carlo stays in Monte Carlo (laughs) kind of ethos. Yeah. And then that model very quickly spread all the way throughout Europe and then over over to America as well. What's fascinating about Monaco is that it not only creates a new template for what a vacation resort can be, but it also creates a new script for what you do on vacation. It's no longer about this didactic experience of traveling, seeing the world, and learning things the way you would on a grand tour. Now suddenly it's about leisure, it's about decadence, it's about hedonism, it's about relaxing. Right. Okay. So this was a time when before this time, it was only the super, super rich who would have had the resources to be able to go on something like the Grand Tour. Um, and then it kind of aligns with the Industrial Revolution that there is a, a nascent middle class in the late 1800s. And that's the first time that a growing portion of the population actually does have the wealth and the kind of lifestyle that would enable this kind of travel. So it makes sense in that, in that way. So kind of after Monaco, it's the, it's the 1860s, 1870s, you start seeing, as you mentioned, copycat resorts, basically. They start cropping up around Europe, and then they start showing up in the U.S., particularly along the eastern seaboard. Paint a picture for us. What is sort of the coast, the Atlantic coast of the United States like in this period, sort of 19th century into the early 20th? Uh, well, they had a vast number of resorts that that cropped up. The difference in the U.S. was that it became a means of escaping the stifling summer heat of the cities uh, in mm. the Northeast in the summer. Whereas in Europe, up until the 20th century, the beach resort culture was something. The high season was in the winter time. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't a summertime pursuit. So that was that was an innovation of the Northeast of, of America in order to escape New York and Philadelphia when they were at their, their hottest and most stifling. And the scale and numbers of these communities or, I don't know, vacation lands that, that show up in New York and on the mm-hmm. Jersey Shore and in Massachusetts, I mean, it's pretty staggering, right? And, you know, these aren't little 
beach huts, right? We're talking grand, Italianate, gorgeous hotels all up and down the coast, right? Yeah, hundreds of them all the way from New Jersey all the way up to Maine, um, just lining the coast exactly. And, you know, as you were saying a minute ago, in some ways, the story of, of the beach resort is the story of this burgeoning middle class. But I think it's important to acknowledge that these were not open democratic spaces, right? I mean, these resorts and places like Atlantic City, these are racially segregated spots, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Almost all of the spots in in the Northeast, um, you know, did not allow people of color. You know, I talk about the example of Atlantic City in the book where, you know, they actually created a separate part of Atlantic City for African-Americans who were most, you know, made up a large portion of of the staff of, of these places. But they severely curtailed their their access to the beach. I think they gave them access for an hour a day or something like that, where they were actually allowed to get in the water. So yes, it was, it was, it was very segregated. And I think we still see the legacy of some of that in these beach resorts around the world, don't we? I mean, you talk about in the book, there's a lot of places where a big resort comes in and they take over a public beach and they make it very difficult for locals to have public access to that beach. And they rely on local labor to you know, work in the kitchens and, and work in the, in the hotels, but these aren't really spaces that are often welcoming of local community members as, as guests. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The tendency of the resort is to kind of create this bubble for the guests to come into where the surrounding culture and surrounding um, population doesn't really infiltrate. Um, it's a really, it's a really strange phenomenon. I would also point out that a lot of, you know, in the 20th century, when beach resorts went global, you know, before that they existed mostly in Europe and America. And when they went global, it was often a, res- you know, a resort would open um, in a former colony of a European country that would cater to that country. So that right. kind of perpetuated um, in that way. Let's jump to the present. The resorts that you write about, the ones that you visited, you know, I I think they're kind of descended from this Monte Carlo model. And the resorts that you're interested in are not just beach destinations, right? These are places that are trying to pass themselves off as paradise. Mm. And you write, I love this, you say, people love the Hamptons, but you've never heard anyone say that the Hamptons are paradise. Right. Let's unpack that because I think it's true. I think if you stop someone on the street and you say, what's your definition of paradise? They are going to describe a very particular kind of beach scene. What are the ingredients? So I think, uh, first of all, I think it has to be very far away from home so that there's this mm. like sense of the exotic or, you know, that kind of thing. I think in our heads, it, it has to be a place that is not as developed as where we live. So, mm. you know, you, even though you will go there and you will not technically be ensconced in nature because you'll be in a resort, you'll have this sense of kind of being in the middle of nowhere in nature. And then there's the, you know, the actual physical attributes of the beach. It has to have that fine white sand. It has to have those beautiful turquoise waters. It has to have the palm trees, you know, leaning out over over the beach. Uh, So there's that part, too. Yeah. And I think, you know, you make the point that that aesthetic, it's 
totally contrived and artificial, right? Like it relies on palm trees. Well, palm trees are not really native to any of these places mm-hmm. where we associate them with being. You know, that white sand is incredibly hard to keep in the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all these grassy lawns in places where grass is non-native. So there's something manicured and artificial about it. And I think that's maybe like almost even part of the appeal, right? There's something, I don't know, maybe this is too like great man theory bullshit, but like there's something about like, look what we managed to build in this inhospitable environment. Does that, does that, does that resonate yeah, at all? I mean, I, I talk about it in the book that, that it's not nature that we're looking for when we look for paradise. We're looking for nature tamed. So mm. we're looking for this sense of being in nature, but in a very safe controlled way. What you said about the palm trees, I was just thinking about this and remembering when I went to um, the Navidi Resort in Fiji and we mm. got on a paddleboard and, and paddleboarded out. When you look back at the shore, it was so stark where the resort um, property ended and the village property right next to it started because that's where the palm trees stopped. So it was right. it was just lined with palm trees and then all of a sudden it wasn't. It was lined with a different kind of tree. Um, and that was such a kind of stark visual image for me of how true that is. I want to interrupt here to make a quick confession. As soon as I finished reading The Last Resort, I felt a twinge, apprehension. There's so much great material in the book that I didn't know how I was going to fit it all into this episode. But then an answer came to me in kind of a roundabout way. I mentioned at the top that a few days ago, my girlfriend and I went for a drink at that oceanfront hotel in Santa Monica. And one of the things that struck me about that hotel was the fact that it was grand and elegant. It had clearly been around for a while in a city where not much has. So when I got home that night, I started Googling. Santa Monica, I learned, first got hot in the 1920s, the glory days of seaside resorts. Some enterprising developers decided to turn it into Atlantic City West. In 1926, two of those developers, brothers named Jack and Till Harder, opened the resort where, a century later, my girlfriend and I went for drinks. Casa del Mar. It was a gorgeous Italianate hotel that was said to be the finest waterfront property of its day. There were oriental rugs on the floors, hand-painted frescoes on the ceilings. It was a hit with the old Hollywood crowd. Clark Gable and Greta Garbo were regulars. It helped that Casa del Mar wasn't just opulent. It was also a little bit naughty. The ocean view balconies were lined with illegal slot machines. The hotel opened during Prohibition but there was a speakeasy inside that served up high-end hooch. And on Thursday nights, apparently, the indoor pool was clothing optional. But then came World War II. I didn't know this, but apparently people were afraid the Japanese might storm the beaches of California, a rumor that was not great for the hotel's business. Richard Graves, director of California State Council of Defense, said today that he feared two Japanese aircraft carriers might be lurking off the California shores. We fear an attack on the Los Angeles area. Jack and Till, or whoever was in charge then, ended up handing the Casa del Mar over to the U.S. Navy, which used it to house troops, who I like to imagine as recruits from the heartland who'd never seen the ocean before, let alone oriental rugs and hand-painted frescoes. 
Anyway, the Japanese did not storm the beaches of Santa Monica. But even when the war was over, the hotel just never really recovered. It closed in 1960, and later it became a drug rehab center, and then a diet clinic. The surrounding area went into decline, too. Seedy biker bars replaced A-list watering holes. A storm destroyed a big chunk of the Santa Monica Pier. The glory days were over. But eventually, Santa Monica's fortunes turned around. And Casa del Mar got a new lease on life. President Obama's interior decorator restored it to its Gatsby-esque glory. When I was there the other night, there was a long line of conspicuously coloned men and perfumed women waiting to check in. Why am I telling you all this? Well, it turns out that cycle, rise, fall, rise again, isn't exclusive to Casa del Mar and Santa Monica. It happens to beach resorts all over the world. That's according to a Canadian geographer named R.W. Butler, who back in 1980 codified the cycle of tourism development, a set of discrete life stages that every touristic area seems to go through. And that cycle had a major effect on Sarah's thinking. She says she analyzes every resort she comes across via Butler's life cycle stages. So let's break it down. Stage one, exploration. An adventurous traveler arrives in some hard-to-reach place and falls in love. There are no hotels. You can't rent snorkels or grab a copy of USA Today. The locals aren't catering to tourists because there have never been any. So the tourists have to assimilate the local culture. When Sarah was working on her book, she met a couple named Claude and Petra Graves. In 1988, they arrived in Indonesia and managed to get to a remote island called Sumba. I asked Sarah about what they found when they arrived and what they ended up building. Yeah, so they found just complete miles and miles of, of empty beaches. The villagers and the, the residents on that island, um, even though they had access to the ocean, they didn't really have a seafood culture. They didn't really use the ocean. So none of the villages were at the ocean. They were all kind of set back up in the hills. Yeah. And so they, this couple just kind of moved on to one of the beaches and lived there for years, um, kind of formulating this plan to, to open a resort eventually. And they, they ultimately did, but it took, if I'm remembering it correctly, I think it took them 15 years, um, from, from getting there to, to opening the resort. And it was, I mean, talk about roughing it. I think you say that they like had their molars. Removed I know. I know they did <laughs> because they were afraid. It, they were what? They were so remote that they might get yes. impacted or a cavity that they wouldn't be able to treat. Yes, as a preemptive measure, they had their molars removed so that they wouldn't have any emergency dental surgery wow. needs. Yeah. <laughs> and then they also, I think, you, like they had to buy up land for the resort by trading water buffalo. And of course they had no idea like the value of buffalo and how to acquire buffalo. Like exactly. I mean, it's pretty, pretty astonishing. So you ended up staying in the resort that was ultimately built in the place that they visited or the place that they spent all those years trying to, trying to turn into something. And today you don't need to have your molars taken out to visit, but you do need to spend upwards of $2,000 a night. D describe just quickly the ambiance of the villa and the kind of characters who vacation there. 
I like to use the phrase honeymooners and hedge funders um, <sighs> because it's, it's from, you know, my experience was it was a pretty even split between honeymooners who for them, it was a once in a lifetime trip to spend that much money on a, on a vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other half of the, the clientele were just super, super rich people who do this kind of trip all the time. A footnote here. One night at dinner, Sarah started talking to a guy who seemed to be the only other solo traveler at the resort. She asked him what he did for a living, thinking he'd say something in finance. But instead, this guy said he was a therapist on vacation with his clients. They'd paid for him to join them in paradise for a few weeks. What better place to work through your problems, right? You know, I think a fair criticism, backing up a little bit, of this exploration stage is that it also sounds kind of like an exploitation stage, right? I mean, there's this pattern that shows up in all the places that you write about, or a lot of the places that you write about in Indonesia, Nicaragua, and the Caribbean, where you have these white Western outsiders come in, they establish tourism, and it caters to other white Western outsiders. They rely on the labor of locals, but these outsiders are in charge. Is there an element of neocolonialism here? How do we make sense of this? And, and, and I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think there is. I think that, you know, as we're talking about this, this cycle, this development cycle of tourism, I think that that element gets stronger as the place develops further. And I think, you know, one of the solutions that I talk about in making beach tourism, you know, a better industry is to figure out ways to um, leave control of the industry more strongly with the local populations than with outsiders. Um, and I think when that happens, you can kind of find this equilibrium um, where it doesn't feel so much like neocolonialism. But if, if left to its own devices, that, that seems to be what, what tends to happen. Okay, let's recap. Stage one, exploration. Whether it's Claude and Petra Graves in Indonesia or Jack until harder in Santa Monica, outsiders arrive, look around, and say, wow, this would be a great place to vacation. Next stage is involvement. That's when those outsiders and locals begin to work together to establish a tourism industry. And then comes the development stage, or as I like to think of it, the amenities stage. This is when international brands arrive on the scene. They start building big new hotels. They import little bottles of shampoo. And to see what the development stage looks like up close, we've got to go to Hawaii. Now, Hawaii is definitely not in this stage anymore, but in the years following World War II, it was the poster child for development. Remember how Monaco boomed because there was this growing European middle class? Well, that's what happened in Hawaii. In those early post-war years, GDP was soaring. Americans suddenly found themselves with disposable income. This is also a period when paid time off becomes common. Also, air conditioning. Suddenly, you can tame the Hawaiian heat. And then there's another factor. You also had air travel, commercial air travel, come Mm -hmm. into the equation. And that's what really made going to a place like Hawaii for a week-long vacation possible. It wasn't feasible before you could take a flight to do it. I want to play for you a clip from a Mad Men episode that you actually reference in the book. And Don Draper, who's the main character, he's an advertising executive. He's pitching the owners 
of the Royal Hawaiian, which is a hotel on Waikiki Beach that you stayed at mm-hmm. uh, and wrote a lot about. Let's let's listen to his pitch quickly. I think we're not selling a geographical location. We're selling an experience. It's not just a different place. You are different. And you'd think there'd be an unsettling feeling about something so drastically different, but there's something else. You don't miss anything. You're not homesick. It puts you in this state. The air and the water are all the same temperature as your body. It's sensory, the music, the fragrance, the the breeze and the blue. It's kind of easy to listen to that and and like be like, oh my God, these are just all the cliches and platitudes we hear all the time about the beach, about, about these exotic locales. But I think if we try to situate ourselves in that post-war moment, you know, I, like I remember reading once that the reason that millions of folks ended up moving to California in the wake, in the aftermath of World War II was that there had been so many GIs who had grown up in, in sort of inner city slums and in the East Coast and in the industrial Midwest or desolate towns. And then they'd gone to California during the war and they trained on the beaches of Malibu and they'd shipped out from San Diego. And a lot of them thought to themselves, like, if I make it through this thing, I'm moving out to this place because mm-hmm. it's sunny and it's warm and it's beautiful. And it's and like if that was the mentality around California, like you can only imagine what the mentality was around Hawaii, right, where everything is kind of turned up to 11. What was Hawaii like in those years for tourists? Yeah, I think what you're talking about has um, an equivalent in Hawaii because so many servicemen during World War II um, passed through Hawaii at some point. That some came to Hawaii for for R and R. So I think there was there was a big infatuation that developed from that. And you know, some of it was marketing. Speaking of Don Draper, this idea of Hawaii took hold. And the culture of not not the actual culture of Hawaii, but the the kind of manufactured culture of Hawaii became extremely popular in in music and fashion and all of that. Not just on Hawaii, but in in the U.S. more broadly. And I think that fed into people wanting to go there as well. But I think you know after World War II, also that you know we were in this this period of sudden great optimism and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, big things were possible. And, you know, what's bigger to, to people who weren't able to travel overseas ever than to get to just hop on a plane and go to the middle of the Pacific ocean. Um, Right. I think it it was, you know, it felt amazing at that time. It felt amazing and dramatic, but there was also an element of safety or familiarity to it. Right. I mean, Don Draper says in that clip, when you're there, you don't feel homesick. And, I mean, part of that is because, well, you're still technically in U.S. territory. You didn't need a visa to get here. And there's this interesting tension that you talk about in the book where, you know, Hawaii for a lot of folks is their first exposure to the quote unquote exotic. You know, they see, I don't know, hula dancing and they go to a luau and and there's this indigenous culture that they're hitherto completely unfamiliar with, but there's still safety and familiarity and they can, you know, order their favorite brand of whiskey at the bar. Um, Talk a little bit about that tension because I think it still exists. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Hawaii was the stepping stone in that way, exactly for the reasons you said. Um, It was a, it was a safe place to go at the same time. It was the first 
beach resort destination uh, that Americans and, you know, to a lesser extent at the time, Europeans could go to that was a different culture and where people didn't look like them. And from there, other places around the world got those same ideas from Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you see it, you see the Hawaiian influence everywhere now, you know, from indigenous or native dances that are performed, uh, you know, on Saturday nights at a resort to, mm-hmm. you know, getting a necklace draped over your neck when you arrive at the resort, you know, the cocktail umbrella was invented in, <laughs> in Waikiki and that's, you know, uh, u- ubiquitous now. Um, so it's Hawaii really did provide that, that point of, of transition from taking the beach resort from a place that was, you know, in your own culture and familiar to heading out into, into other parts of the world. But then, you know, as you know, you talked about the tension, the tension there is that the travelers, you know, guests of the beach resorts still wanted to take their own culture with them to these beach resorts. Um, And so even though they were entering into foreign, you know, cultures, they weren't necessarily, diving into living, <laughs> living out the, the, those cultural experiences. It seems to me, too, that in addition to that taste of the unfamiliar, there's also maybe a little taste of danger. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to take some cool beach trips, not nearly as many as you. And I've had trips cut short by hurricanes. I've had plans changed because of flooding. And kind of from the get-go in Hawaii, there is this battle that is going on between the resorts and nature, between the desire to have a beautiful sand beach in front of your hotel and the waves desire to not have you have a beautiful sand beach in front of your hotel. Talk about why Hawaii's resort beaches are so vulnerable and how climate change is increasing that vulnerability and, and maybe what it says about what we can expect from beachfront resorts worldwide kind of in the years to come. Yeah. Uh, well, Hawaii from very early on was kind of manipulating, especially at Waikiki, the shoreline in ways that was causing the sand to wash away. You know, I, I have a quote in the book from this New York Times article from, I think, the 1920s that's talking about how how the shorefront's already been ruined by <laughs> by too many people building on it and putting up seawalls and it's washing away the the sand. So it's certainly uh, struggling to keep the beach in place is certainly not a new phenomenon for Hawaii. And you know they've been dealing with it in different ways ever since then. But things are definitely getting more challenging um, in Hawaii. You know, as they are in, in most places. Um, one of the things that's happening is Hawaii was never really in a hurricane belt before, hmm. and it's and the way you know the climate is shifting, it's expected to have hurricanes hitting it for for kind of the first time. And then one of the things that kind of blew my mind to learn is that sea level rise. You know, sea level rises at an average global rate, but it doesn't rise at the same rate, you know, in different places throughout the world. And in Hawaii, it's it's rising 25% faster than the global average. And a scientist I was talking to explained to me that one of the reasons that they are pretty sure that this is, is because the, the, the Greenland ice sheet is melting and 
the Greenland ice sheet has such a gravitational pull because it's so big that it was actually pulling water away from Hawaii. Um, its gravity was, and as it's as it melts and its gravitational pull lessens, uh, more water is staying by Hawaii, and that's making the the sea level rise faster there. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it feels like with Hawaii, but with so many of the communities you the places you visited it's like kind of this it's not a question of if but it's a question of when right we sort of know that miami is you know it's not maybe the the sea level will rise and overwhelm miami it's like no that's going to happen and we don't know when and we don't know what we can do to forestall it but it's an inevitability okay additional context here in the 20th century global sea levels rose about six inches In the 21st century, they're expected to rise anywhere from one to three feet. And in Waikiki, the worst case estimates say the ocean could go up by as much as six feet by the end of the century. As Sarah warns in her book, no expert she spoke to could assure her that in a hundred years, the Waikiki beaches will still be here. And if that happens, the Royal Hawaiian will definitely need a new ad campaign or wrecking ball. Because big hotels are part of the problem, not only because they're obsessed with nourishing and preserving their beachfronts, regardless of the ecological toll, but because when you build the big concrete high-rise on the beach, you block the flow of sand, which Sarah says inevitably causes beach erosion. We'll talk a little bit later on about building practices and new architectural styles that might help solve that problem. But for now, let's come back to the resort life cycle. After development comes consolidation, AKA peak tourism. Everything's overcrowded, the locals are fed up. You can't get a reservation at the Tommy Bahama restaurant. Visitors complain that coming here isn't like it used to be. You ever been passing through the Phoenix airport and seen someone rocking a t-shirt advertising a beach resort 2,000 miles away? That's consolidation. You saw this firsthand in Tulum in Mexico. For those who don't know Tulum or, or haven't been there, just describe it for us and describe why it's, uh, why it's at its peak. Well, um, Tulum, I mean, Tulum is a kind of unique place in that the way it evolved from, you know, the early exploration stage was as this kind of eco paradise. And they really kind of just latched onto that and marketed themselves as this, you know, boho eco friendly place. And it turns out though, that as it's grown and grown, there's no way to maintain that. Um, so when you, when you're there on the ground, every place still kind of presents itself as ecologically friendly and, you know, one with nature. Um, but it turns out, you know, none of these places are hooked up to a, to a power grid. So they all mostly run on diesel generators. They have no waste treatment or waste uh, disposal <laughs> um, systems in place. So a lot of um, you know, wastewater is just ending up seeping um, into the ground and down into these underground rivers that, that provide the drinking water for the entire Yucatan Peninsula. Their, their trash is very often just ending up dumped in the jungle somewhere. So Tulum is, um, is a really great example of a place that as it reaches the consolidation stage, its problems, especially environmentally there, are just becoming huge and seemingly without a good solution. 
the stuff about waste, I mean, there's this one, I think she's an anthropologist that you write about who mm -hmm. followed these, I mean, they sound kind of like mafiosos or something mm -hmm. who pump the septic tanks out of these resorts and then drive them into, I don't know, some desolate wooded area and just mm -hmm. dump it out. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. That's kind of what happens in the, you know, so the hotels just hire a company that, that empties septic tanks, but they don't track what happens after that. Right. Yeah. Consolidation is followed by stagnation. Once hip to loom becomes totally uncool Cancun. And then comes the decline stage. Whether because of environmental or economic or status reasons, the area just can't hold on. Sarah happens to live in a resort community that in the 20th century experienced one hell of a decline. Rockaway, New York, a peninsula in Queens that fronts the Atlantic Ocean. And it was in the late 1800s and early 1900s, one of the major, major beach resort destinations in the country. And from there, the kind of classic thing happened that they started catering to more and more and more people, more and more hotels. At some point, it got too crowded and the people who could afford it the most started departing to other destinations because it had become too crowded um, for their enjoyment. And, you know, and then that started the inevitable decline to where, you know, there were, there were hundreds of, of hotels on Rockaway at its peak and, um, and until one opened in 2020, there were, there were none. So it's a really stark decline. Yeah. But perhaps encouraging that a new hotel did open in 2020. And, and that is perhaps a single signal of the last stage, which is not a guaranteed stage, the rejuvenation period. Um, let's talk about that one a little more broadly. You end the book with a series of suggestions or prescriptions even that uh, resort communities around the world can take and, and travelers can take um, and developers can take to correct a lot of the problems that beach culture has created both economically and in terms of climate. Walk through some of, some of those. I mean, like rain in long haul flights or get rid of palm trees. Uh, what do you think we need to do if we're going to maintain this this love affair that we have with the beach. Right. I think we have to start building a lot more sensibly um, is, is mm. maybe the main thing. You know, building right on the beach, a, a, a tall concrete building is just a recipe for disaster for that beach. So, um, you know, some countries already have setback laws in place that require that any new constructions be set, you know, 50 meters, for example, back from the shoreline. I think that's a really important move. And I do agree, you know, I think palm trees, um, you know, they really aren't helpful to shore, shorelines. Most of the time they don't, you know, provide shade. They require a ton of water. They have shallow root systems that don't help, you know, prevent erosion very well, that kind of thing. And they've also replaced natural vegetation that um, contributed to a healthy ecosystem for these places. So I think trying to get back to or kind of changing our, our, our perception away from thinking that paradise, quote unquote, has to have uh, coconut palm trees mm -hmm. is, is an important move for making a lot of these shorelines more resilient. Yeah. I live in Los Angeles where I'm surrounded by palm trees and having read your book, I will no longer look at them 
with the same reverence. I know. This book really changed my view of them also. (laughs) But I think, I think that's really interesting, this idea that we have to build resorts in a different way. I I mean, I love that some of the other examples in your book is that, you know, a lot of these resorts are built with sort of a long-term mentality. This is going to stand forever. And there's, there's folks out there now who are saying, no, we should be building resorts in the short term, right? What if we built a resort that, you know, was, was, constructed out, out of tents mm-hmm. and more sort of temporary type materials. And then when the rainy season comes, you can pack it up and, and move it into land and not have it be threatened by a hurricane or whatever. I think that's that's all really fascinating and, and encouraging. Um, you know, one one last thing I wonder is we sort of talked about this, this disconnect between the clientele and the labor forces at, at a lot of these resorts. And you know, how do we create resorts that don't just serve wealthy outsiders? You know, I have a great family friend who's who's from Barbados. I know that she has never visited one of the five-star resorts in her backyard. How do we change that? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. And I think one of the things that has to happen is that the local populations have to um, be entrusted with more control of, of the industry. Um one thing that does is prevents the kind of economic inequality that you see in a lot of these places. Um, you know, the Fiji, the Navidi resort in Fiji was actually a really great example in the sense that, um, Fiji has really strong laws in place enshrining land ownership to, to native Fijians. And so the, the village next to that resort owns the land on that the resort sits on. The resort leases it from them. So they have an automatic income, um, steady income. Mm. And, and along with that, they are guaranteed certain, you know, good employment at the resort. Um, and that's a really good example of when the law makes sure that the land can't just be taken away from the locals. They end up with control and with economic benefit that otherwise wouldn't have happened. And that helps lessen the the sense that the resort needs to be in a bubble because there's, you know, this poor population outside of it. Yeah. Yeah. It would be great to see that, that mentality exist elsewhere. I mean, like even in the U S right. I I was so disturbed to learn recently that uh, Larry Ellison, who's the billionaire creator of Oracle now owns 98% of Lanai, which is Hawaii's sixth largest mm-hmm. island. He owns 98% of it. And he owns the hotels. He owns the rental agency. He owns the grocery store. He owns a lot of people's homes. Yeah, there's a there's 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 more work to be done. Uh, my last question for you, um, you know, those are all great ideas. But there is part of me that wonders if at the end of the day, they're just kind of temporary fixes. and. You say near the end of the book that the beach resort is a social contract, right? It's kept in place by cultural forces. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, like any social construct, it's impermanent. And it's time for us to edit those cultural forces. It's time for us to maybe come up with a new definition of paradise. Do you think we've reached that point? I mean, I think it's certainly possible that um, our view of of the beach as the place we want to be is starting to change. Um, and I also think that it's kind of a guarantee that a lot of the beach resorts that we might know and love today aren't going to make it through the next um, couple decades. And as that happens, 
you know, that will be another thing that will open a lot of eyes and maybe have us thinking differently. Well, let's leave it there. Sarah, thank you for this book. Thank you for encouraging us to update our thinking about the beach. And thank you for your time today. Thank you. This was a great conversation. Sarah Stodala's book is The Last Resort. I can't recommend it enough. And don't just take my word for it. The New York Times and Esquire both named it one of the best books of the summer. As I mentioned at the top, Rufus has taken a few weeks off, but he's still posting to his newsletter to read it. Follow Rufus Griscom on LinkedIn. Our show today was written and produced by me, Caleb Bissinger. Production assistance from Anna McDonald. Sound design by Mike Toda. The Next Big Idea is produced in partnership with LinkedIn. See you next week. Hey, one last thing before I go. I want to tell you something I just learned. 81% of people say they wish they could read more, but they just don't have the time. If you're in that 81%, I may have a solution for you. It's the Next Big Idea app. We have partnered with more than 500 of the best nonfiction writers at work today. I'm talking about folks like Walter Isaacson, Anne Lamott, Heather McGee, Adam Grant, Daniel Pink. The list is endless. And we've worked with them to create 15-minute audio summaries where they distill their books down into five big ideas. And because these summaries, we call them book bites, because they're written and read by the authors themselves, you know you're getting the real thing. So if you're a person who struggles to fit reading into your day, I think this might be the answer for you. And accessing this incredible library of book bites could not be easier. All you have to do is go to your app store, search for the next big idea, and download the Next Big Idea app. There's no better way to get smart fast. Download it today. Search for the Next Big Idea in your app store.